Welcome to Present Value. Hi, Present Value listeners. I'm Eliza Sherman, a senior in Cornell School of Industrial and Labor Relations. And I'm Josh Gershenfeld, also a senior in Cornell's ILR School. Together, Josh and I serve as co-presidents for the ILR School Sports Business Society, which is Cornell's premier undergraduate student organization dedicated to involving our members in the sports industry and advancing the world of sports. We aim to engage members in the sports business community by preparing members to be active professionals. On that note, we are thrilled to introduce this episode with Mark Tatum, the Deputy Commissioner and Chief Operating Officer of the National Basketball Association. In this conversation, Mark discusses the unprecedented finish to the 2020 NBA season, describing the league's approach to the bubble and commitment to social justice. Mark and host Paul Whitko also discuss Mark's early career and path to working in sports, the growth of the game globally, and the future of the NBA. I hope you enjoy the conversation, and as always, subscribe, share, leave a review, and follow Present Value on Instagram and Twitter at Present Value Pod. I'm your host, Paul Whitco. Today, we welcome on Mark Tatum, the Deputy Commissioner and Chief Operating Officer of the National Basketball Association. At the NBA, Mark is responsible for the league's business operations, including leading the game's international efforts. He also oversees the global partnerships, marketing, and communications departments, in addition to leading the NBA's official minor league system, the NBA G League. In his over 20 years with the league, Mark has been influential in managing key marketing and media partnerships and spearheading groundbreaking initiatives for the league. Prior to the NBA, Mark worked in corporate sponsorship and marketing at Major League Baseball. Mark also had roles in PepsiCo in their sports marketing department and at the Clorox company as a regional sales manager. Mark began his career after graduating from Cornell at Procter & Gamble in sales management. In 2016, Mark was named to Forbes' list of the top 25 most influential minorities in sports. Sports Business Journal named him to its list of the 50 most influential people in sports business in 2014 and 2015. Mark received an MBA from Harvard Business School and a bachelor's degree in business management from our very own Cornell University. Mark, thanks for joining us on Present Value. Paul, thanks for having me. It's great to be with you this morning. So I wanted to start with this. I'm doing this interview from one of the academic buildings here on Cornell's campus. From your side, you're less than a month removed from living in the Orlando bubble campus as the NBA finished its 2020 season. It must have felt a little surreal to be living in that sort of campus-like environment again. I got to know, did it did it bring back memories of your time on campus here in Ithaca? <laughs> did it bring back memories of my time in Ithaca? I, I have to tell you, my time in Ithaca was fantastic. And my time in the bubble was fantastic. So from that perspective, I would say that there were definitely parallels. It was a lot warmer in Orlando than my, my right. days in Ithaca for sure. So, <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> so that part didn't was not reminiscent of my time on campus in Ithaca. But yeah, living living on a campus in Orlando, we we did the best that we could for everyone that was living on that campus, the players, the coaches, the teams, the the staff members that were there to have it not feel confining, right? And at any point, anybody could leave the campus. Although if you left the campus, you had to go through an extensive 
quarantine and a set of protocols in order to re-engage back in the campus. And so the, the intent was to have people maintain their safety and be on campus and to restart our season in a healthy and safe way, which we were fortunately successful in doing. Gotcha. So no late night runs to the dining hall, maybe uh, in the bubble campus necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> like I said, we, we had lots of great opportunities for people on the campus to have access to great food. We partnered with the local community to have different delivery services that our folks took advantage of. We had players, very famous stories of our players fishing at Disney and, and, and taking up fishing and taking up golf. And so there were all kinds of activities like that that kept people engaged. But yeah, unfortunately, no late night runs to his lunch truck or anything like that. Gotcha. No, and this leads into what I wanted to talk about first and, and the bubble itself. So when the production team and I were prepping for this interview and, and discussing the bubble, we couldn't help but think about all of the Harvard Business School case studies that we read in our strategy classes and how we could easily see this 2020 NBA season written up as one of their next cases. You know, moving the entirety of operations nationwide to a singular location, ensuring the health and safety of thousands of players, personnel, campus staff, recreating the visual identity of a sport with no fans. I mean, I could go on and on. But from a strategy perspective, what is it about how you approach this massively complex challenge that made it so successful when seemingly so many other businesses have struggled to adapt? Well, I think there will be many cases that will be written during this time. And the impact that this virus has had, not only the virus, but by the way, the social justice efforts that have taken place at the same time, I think there will be lots of cases that will be written about companies and their need to adapt during this time. And we were no different. When this virus became more prevalent, the first thing that we did is we tried to understand it as much as we could, because there was so much about this virus that people didn't understand early on. And we were fortunate that where the virus originated in China, we actually have several offices in China. And we immediately started engaging with our team there to understand the impact it was having on our business there in China. And as a matter of fact, we actually shut down our offices in China at the end of January, well before the first case of the virus even got to the US. And at that point, we engaged with Dr. David Ho from Columbia University, who's a world-class virologist. And David Ho became an advisor of sorts to us on understanding the virus and what impact it might have on our business. So we were well ahead of this. As a matter of fact, when you look at our first communication to our teams about the virus, it was back in January in a memo and in giving them information that we had received. And so we then spent the next several months, not only with Dr. David Ho, but with lots of other infectious disease specialists, virologists, um, industrial hygienists, really, again, trying to get as much information as we could and trying to understand the impact of this virus on our business. And then, of course, on March 11th, when Rudy Gobert became our first player to test positive for COVID-19, we decided to, to suspend the season at that point because we knew at that point what the risks were and how easily contagious this virus was and, and could be in our population. And so, and I think when we did that, I think the rest of the sports world and a lot of other businesses 
really started saying, whoa, something here is, is there's got to be something much more significant than what we think. At the time that we suspended the season on March 11th, there were only two jurisdictions in the country who had limits of gatherings of people. And after we obviously put a pause in the season, many more jurisdictions, many more businesses decided that it was not a good idea to gather big groups of people at that time. So it was it was really, Paul, understanding from the experts what the impact could be. And then we continue to engage with those experts on trying to figure out a safe way to restart our season. And in those conversations, it became clear that the most effective way to do that would to create this campus-like closed environment to continue to test people on a daily basis to try to contain, if there was a case that got into the campus, to catch it early and to then be able to isolate it and to prohibit it from spreading. Uh, We also practice extensive social distancing. We also work with Disney to on their cleaning protocols um, and implement a whole new set of cleaning protocols. Everyone wore masks. The Disney staff wore PPE, face shields, in addition to face masks and gloves, and there were hand sanitizing stations everywhere. So what really, I think, worked here was a plan that took into consideration and prioritized the health and safety of everybody involved, and that kept the virus at bay and did not let it come into our environment. And we, again, ended up going through that entire three months in the bubble without one positive case amongst our players, amongst our coaches, team staff, which was something that we were all very proud of. Yeah, I mean, that right there says it all weeks and months without any positive cases when it's a virus that can barely be contained at all. So that, that that's super impressive. And it's just the idea that, that public health before anything else, right? Because if, if you have one or two positive cases, the whole thing kind of might blow up right right, right then and there. So, And given how well it worked, uh, it seems like a no-brainer now, right? Looking back, it seem, seems like an obvious decision. But I, I'm sure it was very difficult at the time to kind of move move these operations all down to one singular location, so many moving parts. Was there ever a point in time where you thought this, this might not work or, or we, we won't be able to do a restart? Well, there was a lot of discussion internally on how we did this and how we could do it, how we could do it safely and how we could do it in the right way. And I will tell you, if we did not have confidence in our plan that we could do it and keep everybody safe, we wouldn't have done it. So we we certainly went into it with a tremendous amount of confidence based on the conversations that we had with all the experts in the space. And again, we, we talked to Dr. Fauci, we talked to the Surgeon General, Jerome Adams, we talked to the former Surgeon General, Vivek Murthy. So we, we, we were engaged with the world's best experts in how to restart our season and to do it safely. And so, but again, I would say that the key to it was not just having those health and safety protocols, but actually having people follow them, right? Having the players, having the people on the campus follow those protocols and wear masks when they weren't actually on the court playing and to social distance while they were on the campus and to adhere to the testing, the daily testing regimen that everyone had was subjected to in the campus. And so I think those were the things that really helped us 
get through this in the way that we did. Yeah. And, and you can see a lot of the other major sports leagues, I think, taking a page out of your playbook and, and implementing a lot of the same protocols. So, And you know, you, you know Paul, what, what's interesting, too, is when we first made the decision to go to Orlando, one of the reasons that we chose Orlando and Florida is because at the time we made the decision, it had one of the lowest case rates in the country. And by the time we actually, so that, so that was May when we made that decision. By the time we got there in July, Florida and Orlando had the highest case rate in the country. It, it sort of it became the epicenter of the coronavirus in this country. And at that point, we were really, really nervous um, that what we had put in place would be able to withstand that. But we really did build these health and safety protocols in preparation that we could, that it could withstand even in a environment that we end up being in, that it could withstand that. And so, again, we had a lot of confidence in that plan. You never know until you execute the plan, whether or not it will hold. But the the planning that we put, the expertise that we sought out to build that plan gave us that confidence. That's great. And so while the NBA was able to restart over the summer in the bubble, real life didn't stop in the rest of the country as the killings of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd sparked a national conversation about social justice and racial equity. And as a part of the restart, I know the league took many steps to support its players and this important cause. I'd love if you could talk a little bit about how the league thought about its role in supporting this movement and some of the steps that it took as a part of restarting league operations during this time. Yeah, when we were we were in the midst of planning the restart in May, and that's when the George Floyd murder happened. And there was a lot of discussion and conversation with our partners, the players at the player and the players association during that time on whether or not it was the right thing to do to continue playing games in the midst of the tremendous social unrest that was taking place in our country after the killing of George Floyd. And so we were talking to our players on a regular basis at that time anyway, several times a week. And our discussions then started in addition to figuring out whether or not we could safely play, whether or not it was the right thing to do to play. And we came to the conclusion collectively that this was a unique opportunity in time, that the platform that this restart would provide would give the players and our teams an opportunity to continue the discussion when it came to fighting for social justice, fighting for racial equality, which when you look at the history of the NBA and you look at the history of our players in this space, it's undoubted, it's undoubtable that over the course of decades, this league and our players have stood for and have fought for social justice and racial equality. So it is something that's in and has been in our DNA going back to Bill Russell and Oscar Robertson and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, who again have fought so hard for social justice in this country. And so the players and the league collectively came to that decision that we would actually, a fundamental purpose of the restart would be to continue the conversation on fighting for social justice. And as a result of that, we 
put Black Lives Matter on the court. We decided that players could put social justice messages on the back of their jerseys to, again, promote social justice and to keep the conversation from ending. And the players wore warm-up shirts with Black Lives Matter on it. And then there was a, a tremendous commitment that was being that was made by our team governors, our team and our teams to contribute $30 million a year over 10 years to establish a foundation. So a $300 million 10-year commitment to establish a foundation to create economic empowerment and opportunity in the black community. And so those are the, 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 the tangible things that we collectively did as an organization to keep the conversation going and the fight for social justice going in this country. And then we got into the, the bubble and the teams did that and, and, and the players did that. And every opportunity, every interview, every discussion, I mean, there was so much, I think, discussion led by our players and our teams in this issue. And then the Jacob Blake shooting happens in August and it hits our players and it hits our teams and it hits the league and the players association hard in August and the Bucks, uh, the, you know, they play in the very state where the shooting happened. The Bucks decide they couldn't go that night. And we paused the season yet again. There were a series of meetings, discussions between the players, between the league office and, and our teams. And out of that, we decided that we needed to do even more. And we needed to focus on civic engagement and focus on voting. And out of that, 23 of our NBA arenas became polling locations. And we changed the message on our warm-up shirts to vote. And we worked with different nonpartisan voting organizations to sign up more than 20,000 poll workers. And I think when you look at the result, no matter what side you're on, the the unprecedented turnout of Americans in this country to go out and exercise their right to vote was just incredible to see. And I think there's no doubt that, again, our focus and our team's focus and, and, and really the country's focus on, on encouraging people to exercise their, their civic duty to engage in voting um, was just an incredible uh, thing to see. And we decided to create a social justice coalition coming out of that with the players and the coaches to, again, encourage civic engagement and to look at sensible reforms that need to be made in our uh, criminal justice system um, and, and, and in other uh, systemic areas that, that we need to deal with and address. And so that, Paul, is a little bit of context as to how we collectively dealt with this issue with the players over the last several months. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really amazing and inspiring to see an organization like the NBA use its 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 massive platform for the greater good. I think that's just just really really impressive. And I know, I just looking ahead, there's there's a lot still to be figured out about what next season will look like. It, it seems like maybe it's it's starting sooner rather than later. But along these lines, how do you see the league continuing its commitment to social justice and racial equity? You know, in this season and and seasons to come. Like I said, this is something that we've been focused on. We've always been focused on the the 
very values of the NBA are about inclusion, about respect, about diversity. And so these are things that have been a part of the NBA since its founding and will continue to be going forward. There are a couple of different areas, like I mentioned, the NBA Foundation, which are it has been established. We actually had our first board meeting last week, and that foundation will get to work in terms of trying to close the economic gap that exists between the Black community um, and other communities by creating jobs for Black America and creating economic empowerment in the Black community. This social justice coalition, we actually just announced the participants today, as a matter of fact, and the social justice coalition will start getting to work on things around civic engagement and areas of reform that need to be addressed. So we've now established some organizations between us and the players in our teams to really continue the fight for social justice and and racial equality. Yeah, um, clearly a lot of work left to be done, but it's but it's just getting started. So I wanted to switch gears a little bit now and and take it back to uh, your time at Cornell and some of your career journey since then. So I know you started your career at P&G after graduating from Cornell. Sounds pretty familiar. I will also be headed to P&G in a marketing role upon graduation. So I wanted to ask you, what was the foundational knowledge that you learned there that helped you um, throughout your career? Well, first of all, congratulations on, on the P&G opportunity. Thank P&G, you. P&G was such an incredible first place for me to start my career. I went to Cornell as a pre-med student and I took organic chemistry and I then decided I wasn't going to be a pre-med student <laughs> anymore, um, like, like I'm sure many others who have taken organic chemistry. And so, but I, but I had no idea what I wanted to do, Paul. And so Fortunately, the resources of Cornell in the career office were so terrific. I remember they gave me a Myers-Briggs test and they suggested when the results came back that I should think about something in the business world. And so I ended up taking intro to business management just to see if it was something that I would enjoy. And I ended up enjoying it. And it was, and I ended up transferring from the College of Arts and Sciences into the Ag School. And at the time it was AgEc, you know, and, and I know it then went to Army and AIM and, you know, that was the undergraduate business program. And so, but that led me to being able to interview with Procter & Gamble, who did on-campus recruiting. And it was P&G still to this day, but certainly 30 years ago when I graduated was the best in the world when it came to the fundamentals of sales and marketing. And I truly learned the fundamentals of sales and marketing from the very best in the world. And the things I learned there today in terms of how to make a presentation, how to handle objections, how to market a product, those are things that I still use in my job today. And I was so fortunate having not had any prior experience in business to go there and learn from the world's best, right? They were, even back then, a global company doing business around the world. And so that gave me this global perspective on business, which now, as I oversee the NBA's international operations, has been incredible. It's been tremendous in terms of how 
you organize businesses internationally, how you make decisions locally versus uh, in the U.S. you know headquarters. So those are all the things that I, I learned as a fresh out of Cornell, you know, employee at a company like Procter and Gamble. Yeah, and and what I'm most excited about, and you hit on it a little bit, is they set you up on day one to be a business owner and really own your part of the business and the roles and responsibilities. So I know you really capitalized on that and got promoted four times within four years, is is what I understand. I'm wondering if you can give me a little bit of the secret sauce. <laughs> yeah, so they so my first job, they put me in this territory. You know, I was, I'm from Brooklyn, New York, and they put me in this what they call the inner city, inner city grocery retail organization, inner city GRO. So they gave me the territory that no one else wanted, but I loved it, right? Because I was literally going into supermarkets in the neighborhoods where I grew up. And I would go in and I would talk to the store managers. and I would try to convince them to bring in more Tide as opposed to private label or to bring in Bounty instead of instead of the store brand. And you know, and, and I remember those life lessons and the lessons that I learned then of, you know, it was not just volume, but it was profit. And that I convinced these store managers that if they sold one, you know, item of bounty, that that was better than selling, you know, three items of private label tissue papers, as an, as an example. And so those were the, the and, and handling, you talk about handling objections when you're dealing with the, the, where the rubber hits the road, they're at the actual point of consumption where customers take things off the shelves. And you know, creating these tied bullseye planograms on the shelf and in, in, in the psychology of how consumers shop. So those were all things I learned and I embraced that. And I tried to do things differently. And I always, always had this idea of I'm going to not only do what's expected of me, but I'm going to go beyond, above and beyond. And I think, you know, when you do that in most organizations, you get noticed and you get recognized. And I was fortunate enough that I had some great managers at Procter & Gamble who recognized the effort, who recognized the creative thinking, who recognized my ability to do things that hadn't been done before. And I got rewarded for that in getting additional territories and then additional accounts and additional responsibilities. Oh, that's awesome. It gets me fired up to get started just hearing you talk about it. But enough about that. So after business school, you had a quick stop at the MLB and then really a long career, um, like I said, over 20 years with the NBA. So I wanted to know what's been the staying power with being with the league and being on the league side. And I guess, are you ever tempted to take your skills to the team side or, or a GM or ownership type role? Yeah. You know, let me explain how I kind of got into sports sure. and the league. So, so when I was at Procter and Gamble in 1994, I'd been there three years and the world cup of soccer had come to the U S and it was the last time actually that the world cup of soccer has been in the U S and Procter and Gamble was a sponsor. And so I had played baseball growing up and I actually played at Cornell and love sports. But at the time, remember I, I, I was a pre-med student, so I didn't know much about business. I didn't even actually even know you could do a job in sports marketing. You could, that you could actually do a job in sports. And so 
when Proctor became the sponsor of the World Cup, I got assigned in the New York, New Jersey area, the person to bring that sponsorship to life. And I was part of a national team of executives to bring that sponsorship to life. And that gave me this exposure to the world of sports marketing. And that's when I decided that that's what I wanted to do. And so I ended up being at Clorox as a region sales manager, but I got some advice from someone at the NFL who suggested that for me to get into the business of sports, that I should actually, I had great experience. I didn't know anybody in the business of sports. And so she suggested maybe going back to business school and building my network in sports. And so that's what I did. So I applied to HBS, got into Harvard, interned between my first and second year at Pepsi in their sports marketing group. Pepsi was a sponsor of Major League Baseball. I met the, the president of Major League Baseball Properties at the time, a guy named Bob Gamgort. And Bob handed me his business card and he said, stay in touch with me. I know you're finished up your second year of business school. I did that. I ended up doing a field study project for him for academic credit. And then he made me an offer to come work for him at baseball. So I thought I had died and gone to heaven because there I was. I played baseball growing up, played at Cornell, and now I was working for Major League Baseball. But the NBA recruited me back in 1999, a year after I had graduated from business school. And I'd always admired the NBA because of their marketing, because of their branding, because of their global nature. And so for me, when I got that phone call, I saw an opportunity of a lifetime. And I came over in 1999 as a director, and I actually interviewed with the late David Stern, which was a pretty funny interview, and, um, but he, 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 they offered me the job. And it's just been, and, and since then, again, it's been 21 years that I've been there. I've never had a day where I was bored. The people there are amazing. We have a commissioner who is Adam Silver, who is a visionary, who is just an incredible visionary and team of people that want to be the best at what we do. And that has kept me so engaged over these years, the growth of the game, particularly internationally, and what we've been able to do internationally, and the growth of the game here in the US with the, a whole generation of fans, young and old. Um, we continue to try to innovate at the NBA in every different area. And it has kept me motivated and it has kept me engaged. That's great. And that that's really all one can look for out of a job at the end of the day is, is being happy every day and, and, and being motivated and being engaged, exactly like you said. And, and, and continuing to learn. I learn every single day. <laughs> and I think that's important for anyone, whether you're earlier in your career or later in your career, you want to be in a role, you want to be at an organization where you're still learning. And, and even in this role, I feel like every single day I'm still learning. And I think that's what, like I said, keeps me happy and keeps me engaged. Yeah, absolutely. 
So I, I wanted to transition a little bit and, and staying on the NBA and, and get your thoughts on a few things going on in the league today, both here in the U.S. with the league and, and, all, and then internationally. So from your experience as a marketing executive for the league for many years, I'm curious your thoughts on the league marketing to its star player, right? More than any other sport, I think people characterize the NBA as a star-driven league. Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Michael Jordan, LeBron James, right? The list the list grows every year. Is, is this sort of a conscious decision by the league? How does the, the league think about marketing to its stars? So the, the league is a league of players and it's a league of teams and they are our partners. They are our, our, our partners in everything that we do, even in the construct of how they get compensated. We, in essence, share the revenue in the form of compensation and salaries to them. Um, and we share that equally. So in essence, for every dollar of revenue that we generate, the players get half of that in terms of salaries. And so they are, in, in every sense of the word, partners of ours. And I think what's so different about the NBA and our players is that there's only 10 of them out there on the court at any one given time. The fact that they are in shorts and tank tops, <laughs> in essence, and you know, jerseys that with no masks and no helmets or anything like that. The fact that you can't get any in a non-COVID world any closer to the competition than you do in a courtside seat and in an arena at an NBA game. And so I think their personalities come out more. And then certainly in this age of social and digital media now, our players have embrace that and really taking it to a whole nother level in terms of how they're engaging with our fans. And so, you know, those are terrific things collectively for our league because there are such great personalities in our players in our league where so many hundreds and hundreds of millions of fans around the world can relate to. And we highlight that. We highlight how terrific our players are, what they do back in their communities, what they do to fight for the things that are important to them. And we also, uh, I think our game is so ideally suited for this digital age of incredible highlight moments and snackable moments of ingenuity and innovation and athleticism, whether it's a incredible no-look pass or a incredible slam dunk you know, those things spread virally very, very quickly. So it is, like I said, a partnership with our players. And I think our players are the ones who drive interest in our league from our fans and do the incredible things on the court and perform on the court. And we continue to amplify everything that they do. Yeah, I love the way you put that, that the sort of snackable moments that you're highlighting and capitalizing on. And and it's really become more than just uh, during the season itself. There are there are like moments in time of, of player movement and, and, and whatnot in the offseason. And that kind of leads me into my next question. And, you know, in my time as a fan, the one player who has had the, the most massive impact on the game of basketball is LeBron James. And, you know, one thing in particular that he's credited for largely is ushering in this era of player movement and and player empowerment right stars are star players are entertaining free agency and switching franchises more frequently than ever um so you know there are many aspects to this but i i wanted to ask you how has the league just reacted to that shift in player behavior yeah everything that we do like i said is bargained with and negotiated with the players association and so 
we have a set of rules that our league, that our teams and our players operate under. And so none of the things that are happening, all of those, as, a, as a, I should say it differently, all of the things that are happening are well within the rules and constructs of what we've negotiated with the players. And, you know, it's interesting because people do talk about the creation of super teams. Well, you know, you, you go back to the old Celtics or the old Lakers or the old, I mean, Bulls with Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen and Dennis Rodman. There were teams that had big threes and big fours long before the Miami Heat and the Golden State Warriors. And so, you know, I, I do think that there is a little bit uh, culturally where players now, if they grow up playing together through AAU, they grow up playing together on the USA basketball team. And there are friendships that evolve and players want to play with friends of theirs and, and other players. Uh, that being said, like I said, there is a system on which under which you have to operate and our teams and our players are operating under that system. So look, we think it's, we think our system generally works. Uh, we've had several different NBA champions in the last decade. I, I believe the number is, you know, seven different teams have won NBA championships in the last 10 years, something like that. So it's, it's spreading, I think the opportunity for our teams, and our fans around the league, to be able to compete for championships, which is a good thing for our sport. Exactly. And speaking of star players, I wanted to transition to talking about growing the international game, right? Many of many of these stars that we see nowadays are, are from international origins and just kind of bringing it back to what's going on here in campus. So Cornell's full-time MBA program has a third of its students from international origins. And at the start of last season, the NBA had 108 international players on team rosters. Uh, like I said, the league is bolstered by stars, you name it, you know, Giannis, Luka, Embiid, Jokic. And the NBA also plays games internationally in Europe and China and hosts the annual NBA Africa game and most recently played preseason games in India. Uh, and that list might not even be exhaustive of, of everything that's going on. But can you walk us through the overall international strategy and the benefits specifically to business that the league has seen in growing into a truly global league? It's incredible. And I, I go back to really 1992 and the dream team and you could point back to that dream team and look at the impact that they had on the players who decided to play basketball as opposed to playing soccer, as an example. You know, Tony Parker from France, he wore number nine because he saw Michael Jordan play in Barcelona in the 92 Olympics, and Michael Jordan wore number nine. And you know, Tony Parker um, likely would have been growing up in France as a young man, an elite athlete, probably would have gone to play professional soccer. But because he was inspired by that dream team, he chose to bounce a ball instead of kick a ball. And so many other players, whether it was the Gasol brothers or, you know, Dirk Nowitzki or Manu Ginobili, you hear these stories about those guys who point back to that team. And they've now sparked this new generation or, or, you know, even go back to Hakeem Olajuwon and Dikembe Mutombo and how they've inspired the next generation of African player to pick up the game of basketball. And so for us, how that translates into our business is we continue to grow our international 
game in our international business tremendously. Uh, 70% of our social media traffic and fans come from outside the United States. You know, there's a lot more people outside the United States than there are inside the United States. We're the number one sport in China, uh, as an example, where 300 million people play the game of basketball in China. Our viewership and engagement in China um, oftentimes exceeds that of of here in the United States, as an example. And so it, it really has been incredible to see the growth of basketball internationally and in, in places like Asia and places like Africa, where we, where we announced that we're launching our first ever league outside of North America in the Basketball Africa League. Um, as you mentioned, Paul, we're, we played our first ever preseason games in India. We've been playing preseason games in China for for a while now. We played for the first time in 16 years preseason games. We've been back to Tokyo, Japan. For the first time this past season, we played a regular season game in Paris. We had played preseason games in Paris before, but a regular season game there. So there's just these you know opportunities to bring the live game experience internationally, which creates a whole new set of fans. And it also inspires a whole new generation of players who ultimately come into our league. And as you mentioned, you know, when you go back, not this past season, but the season before, you know, our MVP was Giannis Antetokounmpo from Greece. Our rookie of the year was Luka Doncic from Slovenia. Our defensive player of the year was Rudy Gobert from France. And our most improved player of the year was Pascal Siakam from Cameroon. I mean, these guys are not just in our league, they are winning awards in our league, competing for the best player in our league, an MVP and rookies of the year. And, and you know, we're about to have the draft on Wednesday, November 18th next week. And again, a whole new generation of international players are going to be coming into our league. And so we really are accessing a global pool of talent, which makes our league much more competitive and it makes our league much more compelling to fans around the world. No, that's great. And along those lines, here at Cornell, we talk a lot in the classroom about how diversity in a working team introduces new opinions, ideas, and thoughts, and as a result, ultimately brings about a better work product. And I, I see the same things happening in the NBA with this influx of international players. Um, today's game has a different feel as players have a greater variety of playing styles and strengths. In your mind, how has the on-court product evolved as the league has become more international? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree with you more, right? The the Euro step, the big man taking threes, the like the, there's no doubt that the international game has influenced the 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 NBA game. And it's because these different players who grew up playing the game, and as you said, there's it is a true meritocracy. And when you bring together the best in the world you increase the chances that there's going to be new things that are that you're exposed to and new ways of doing things and so i think it's been such a positive to bring different perspectives from all over the world whether it's the european game or the players from africa who bring a different style of play into the nba i think all players truly do benefit from that. And the league, therefore, is a beneficiary of that diversity 
of style of play. No, I, I, I totally agree. So I wanted to close with a few questions about some of the exciting things going on with emerging technologies in the NBA and just kind of the future of the fan and the fan experience. So, you know, I guess a, a silver lining of the, the bubble experience has been the way in which the league has been able to showcase some of its uh, new digital capabilities. I remember watching a hologram version of Draymond Green interview Jamal Murray in Orlando, which was pretty wild. But with 5G and, and virtual reality technology becoming more readily available, how does the league plan to leverage these technologies to improve whether it's the visual identity of the product or potentially open up some new, you know, promotion or sponsorship opportunities. Yeah, we're we're so excited about 5G and virtual reality. As you mentioned, 5G with our partnership with AT&T, we actually did create these hollow interviews, these hologram interviews that allow different broadcasters, both our TNT broadcasters and ESPN ABC to interview participants in the bubble through these holograms. And 5G technology enables that. And 5G technology, I think, is going to enable all kinds of innovations in our game in terms of how we present it, the data that we present, the opportunity to not only, I think, present the experience in a different way, but like I said, you know, for example, there's there will be a point where there will be little holograms running up and down on your desk, as an example, um, that's enabled through through 5G, as opposed to maybe watching it on a traditional screen. The partnership that we have with Facebook and Oculus on VR this year gave fans the opportunity, even though there weren't fans in our buildings in Orlando, you could have that virtual courtside seat by having the fa- the Facebook Oculus VR technology and and wearing the goggles there. You know the the fact of the matter is there's only about of our fans around the world that ever actually have the opportunity in a pre-COVID world to experience an NBA game live, right? And so we need to continue to use technology to innovate, to give people that great experience, even though they can't be there live. And I think technologies like 5G and virtual reality are just going to get better and better and replicate that experience for people that can't get to an arena, an NBA arena live, but still give them that feeling of the speed at which the game is played, the power that is incorporated into our game, and the skills that are demonstrated in our game. I think those that technology will enable that kind of experience for the hundreds of millions of fans every year that can't get to an NBA arena. Right. And I think we know that this upcoming season is, is probably still going to look pretty different with arenas largely uh, empty a- across the country in all likelihood for upcoming games. But I guess in addition to these technologies, uh, does, the, does the league have other ideas in mind about how to keep fans engaged who might not be able to get into an arena? Yeah, you know, you, you probably saw um, what we did in Orlando, where we actually worked with Microsoft Teams and we created a virtual fan where there were these big screens and LED screens in the arena and you could log on through Microsoft Teams in their together mode and actually be in the arena digitally. And I think we're going to continue to look at doing much more of that. We're going to continue to amplify our social media efforts. You know, we've got one of the uh, the largest followings on social media of any 
sports brand in the world with 2 billion likes and follows, um, you know, and engagements across Twitter and TikTok and Facebook and Instagram and, and Snapchat, you name it. We're leading the way when it comes to engaging our fans with compelling content, both on the court and off the court, and telling the stories of our players and our teams in that way. So we'll continue to do that and program for the different channels and give our fans around the world opportunities to engage with the game the way that they want to on the platform that they are using. And just to close with this, you know, thinking about the future of the game and and always evolving in in the way that the league approaches the season and and the best experience for fans. I know there's been some experimenting or thought about different structures to the the regular season and the postseason, whether it's uh, trying out like the Elam ending in the All-Star game or there's been rumors of maybe a different conference structure or play in tournament. What's kind of the impetus for these these changes? And and do you see the league continuing to kind of evolve in, in those ways going forward? Yeah, as I said earlier, we always want to innovate. We always want to try different things, new things. We want to evolve because in this environment, in this world, if you stay static, the world just passes you by, right? And we know that with new technologies, as our fans evolve and change, we listen to them and we hear them. And you know, in the bubble this year, for example, we actually had been thinking about this concept of a play-in tournament. And we implemented that in Orlando, where we actually had this concept of a play-in game. And you know, one of the things that we are talking about in terms of restarting and starting up our, uh, our 2020-21 season is this concept of a play-in tournament that would give more teams the opportunity longer to compete for a playoff spot. And so we, we just have this in our DNA that we're going to not settle for the status quo, that we're going to continue to evolve our game to make sure that we are evolving with the times and evolving with the fans. And we'll continue you know, to innovate and look at different ways where we can improve, enhance the game. And it's okay if it doesn't work. It's okay if it, if it fails. You know, what we don't want to do is get into a situation where we don't try things that we know we should be trying in order to improve our game. Well, I'm, I'm excited for, for what's ahead for the league. And as a fan, I, I can't wait to watch. So, Mark, thanks so much for, for joining us on Present Value today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Paul, and good luck to you. Thank you. Present Value Podcast is an independent editorial project created by students at the Samuel Curtis Johnson Graduate School of Management at Cornell University. This episode was produced by Alex Vorwald, Adam Musa, Will Stankiewicz, and Jason Lee. I'm your host for this episode, Paul Whitco. Music by Poddington Bear. Logo by Kalechi Pomongo. Until next time, thanks for listening to Present Value.